Welcome to Team Rebel Edition 219 Super Calligraphic Tashi Expialidoshes with monastic creative Vajrayana Buddhist Tashi. Join the team as we get to know him, one of the world's foremost contemporary Tibetan calligraphers, a world traveler, and an aesthetic alchemist. Get in your diamond vehicle and enjoy the ride. Welcome and well met. Thank you. How's it going, Tashi? So something we do at the beginning of these episodes is uh, correlate the number, which in this case is 219, which reduces down to three, um, to a major arcana of the uh, Western Tarot kind of situation. Uh, that is mm -hmm. the Empress card. I fully embrace life's rich fecundity. Everything is possible, allowing abundance into your life tapping into the creative flow of the universe and starting something nurturing. Raphael, what would the angel card be? We have angel number 33, the angel of subordination to higher order, belonging to the virtues. This angel helps to know the people who harm their fellow human beings through treachery and destroy the evil designs of the envious, protects the noble and those crowned with light. It is the omniscient God associated with the tarot card nine of pentacles. And the affirmation is, I experience the sense of certainty that comes with knowing I have made the right choices. So I'm curious, Tashi, between that Empress card and that 33rd angel card, uh, if anything resonated for you. Yeah, that's, that's quite a card. Um, I think very uh, appropriate for uh, a day and age with what the world is, is going through. Well said. Um, and it's interesting, uh, just for context, uh, we've had Jesse Waters, who knows you, um, on the podcast before. And when she had done her episode, um, she, uh, you know, she suggested I hit you up. And here we are many months later. Um, I have been checking out some of your work. Uh, it's beautiful. I'm an art history dropout, so I can very much appreciate the aesthetic of it. And I'm not a Buddhist per se, and definitely haven't gone through the monastic rigmarole that you have, clearly. Um, but I am fascinated as to kind of your story, kind of uh, your perceptions, what you've been up to creatively. Um, like I said, some, your work is something that people need to see. Uh, it's very, um, when people, you know, calligraphic or calligraphal, um, are is uh, you know words, and it seems like there's a lot of magic and intention behind the words that you're doing, both culturally and aesthetically. So uh, I guess as long-winded and or as short-winded as you want to be, it doesn't have to be call me Ishmael type stuffs. But um, I'm kind of curious uh, where you grew up, what kind of culture you were dealing with when you started to kind of waking up to some of your talent and maybe the direction your life has gone and maybe that process uh and the conch is yours wow um thank you very much that's very that's a very uh generous generous of you uh to give me uh all this uh audio space and time uh to explain a little bit about myself um i am uh, i think naturally a bit shy 
you know, of talking to, about myself, um, uh, educated um, and brought up as a Buddhist, then we are taught to be humble. Um, so to, to talk about myself is always a bit kind of weird. Uh, but in this day and age, we, we do need to talk about ourselves, especially when we're invited onto uh, something like this, you know, to, to share. Maybe so, a way you can think about it is like, we're really lucky, I guess, that ancients wrote down some of the stories and secret mantras, etc. of whatever they were going through. So just kind of kick back, sit back, relax, think of it as a kind of a biographical sketch. Maybe you'll, you know, you're nurtured. We're not looking for the right answer, so to speak, or anything like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I just find you both really interesting as a person from what little I've gathered. And obviously your journey through this life has been atypical for a Westerner, so to speak. So... Yeah, just uh, you know, at your own pace. Don't you take a few deep breaths. You know, zoom in, and uh, yeah, don't feel like there's any kind of wrong way to do this. Uh, I'm interested in you, so you don't have to do anything special. No, that, that's that's fine. Um, yeah, deep breath. Mm, I think going back to my, if I think about my parents, uh, both my parents are, are British, and born in the, I was born in the early 60s, uh, the year that Marilyn Monroe died, I believe, um, 1962. And I was the first child to my mother. Um, and she, she always said that there was, there was something different about me. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, but it was confirmed many, many years later um, when I completed a traditional, what we call a three-year, three-month, three-day retreat. It's, it's a retreat where you're cloistered from the world. And when we emerged from the retreat, uh, after not seeing my parents for all that time, I think I went in when I was 27 years old as a monk. Uh, when, I, when I came out of the retreat, my mother's remark of, of how I was, she said, oh, you've, you've returned to how you were when you were born. There's this essence about you as, as Tashi, this Tashiness. She couldn't put into words what it is exactly, but she said that that's what it is. And, and I, I always thought that that was a really important point because generally there's a misunderstanding um, often a misunderstanding with a spiritual path uh, that you when you adopt this uh, spiritual path that you become spiritual or you be, or you may mistake you become a, a spiritual person you becoming something something different to who you are but actually a real spiritual journey is becoming more who you are you know you're becoming more to the essence of of yourself your your nature your nature of minds and we say we call this in um as a tibetan buddhist we call this your buddha nature so um my parents f fell in really with with uh the first wave of tibetan lamas when they came out of uh, 
escape from Tibet. Um, and a few prominent or eminent lamas came to the UK. And my fa father, who's a photographer at the time, he who's, um, became acquainted with these lamas. And one um, English uh, lady uh, who who became uh, one of the first uh, Tibetan Buddhist nuns. And she was invited to my, my home. And I, I was only, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 9, 10 years old or something. So there's this strange shaven woman you know, sitting in my front room wearing these dark maroon robes. And um, I was kind of quite shy, but at the same time really intrigued. You know, why is this woman shaved her head? And back then, in the, I think it's the early, very early 70s this was, people, people who shaved their head, you know, <laughs> were either going through chemo or something, something like that. So it was a bit weird, but at the same time, I was really att um, attracted um, to this, this way of life. And then shortly afterwards, we, as a family, we went to the south of France, or the Dordogne, in near to the south of France, where there was one of the very first, uh, we call uh, Tibetan Buddhist centers, um, just emerging in the very early days. And there were two very wizened um, monks, Tibetan monks, Tibetan lamas uh, from, from India. And as a, a young boy, I was 11 years old at that time. I was very, um, very impressed with how kind they were, how, um, how sane they were, incredibly sane, but at the same time, very happy and joyful. Um, yeah, just generally content people. And I remember looking at them and thinking, wow, this is, such a nice way to be as a human being. That's how we should all be, really. And that's what inspired me to uh, pursue this Dharma path, the path of Dharma. Um, because obviously, they are happy because they practice meditation, they follow the Buddhist uh, philosophies um, and practices. And so that's that's really what planted the seed within myself. Did now, you relate uh, to British culture at all? I mean, when you were, met them, Dark Side of the Moon maybe had just dropped. It was a very kind of confusing time. <laughs> culture, was, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, A lot of psychedelics, a lot of political upheaval, Vietnam, etc. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel that the world was just kind of in crazy bardo state and you wanted to kind of get out of it and <laughs> that looked like the way out? Or how, I mean, clearly it resonated, but... Um, did you not relate at all to the you know contemporary modern Western British? My fiance is uh, from Stoke on Trent, I should say. So um, yeah, it seems like uh, you know even in the south yeah, of France, yeah. it was a kind of a uh, culture shock in a good way. Yes, it was exactly that. I mean, in Britain at that time, it was a very hard time. You know, there was there was uh, uh, a lot of strikes from from unions and, and the working class, and and it was, it was quite a hard hard time man. I remember having we experienced power cuts because there's a strikes from the miners and there's a shortage of coal 
uh, and shrikes from importers so there's no sugar on the shelves, bags of sugar on the shelves, and all these strange kind of little hardships really because of uh, unrest. And I think what, what really, to answer your question, it's mm, I didn't particularly fancy growing up to be that, that norm, you know, to be maybe a working class kid. I knew there was much more to life than that. And even before I'd met these Tibetan lamas, I used to, I had it in my mind, I used to think about it. I said, well, what is, what is the truth? What is truth, you know? And going to church, for example, with my grandparents, and I didn't really quite dig that, you know, it didn't really switch me on. And, I, you know, well, what's everyone doing sort of so solemnly kneeling there? praying to God, who, who is God, you know, and, and, and the people who go to the church, churches, they, like everybody else really at that time, they didn't really seem to be t- particularly happy, you know. So when I met these lamas who were very genuine and very sane and very loving, I thought, wow, you know, they've really got something. So, yeah, you're right. It, it, it did put a great contrast when I was at school, for example, I kept it very quiet to myself. There's only a couple of friends that I would share that actually I was, I was with my parents meeting these Tibetan lamas, these very high incarnate lamas. And for me, and shared with my brother and my sister, it gave so much um, magic in our lives. Not hocus-pocus magic, but really inspiring inspiring inspirational um magic um and and that in a, in a stark contrast to working class middle england birmingham um it, it really it really hit to my heart uh, and obviously has, has lasted till today that's beautiful. So, I mean, it sounds like your grandparents were maybe doing the Anglo-Saxon kind of um, Protestant thing, potentially. Um, <laughs> yes, but yes. whereas your parents were obviously kind of checking out the periphery of the influx. Um, I know that people might who aren't maybe historically aware of the Tibetan situation, uh, a good film with Brad Pitt, uh, you know, dramatized or whatever, Seven Years in Tibet, kind of shows yes, yes. the situation as it stood. Um, so obviously this exotic kind of Buddhist, um, as well as, you know, Hinduism and all the stuff that the Beatles were doing kind of back in the day, um, all this stuff is kind of hitting Western minds, occultism, uh, all this stuff. Uh, were your parents Buddhist or were they just into this? Um, and how did it go? You know, there's many flavors of Buddhism. How did it get particular to the one you're in? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I think you were right. There was, there was a shift at that time. I mean, my parents were both, they, they actually met each other at art school, um, in, uh, during the 60s, you know, early 60s, very early 60s. They, they even had the Beatles booked of their, their sort of unifer, university uh, Christmas party. But by the time Christmas came, the Beatles were too famous <laughs> for them. That's to, crazy. To, to, I mean, so yeah. that was probably like the help phase or earlier probably as opposed the, to the, uh, what I prefer, which is like uh, rubber soul and onward kind of stuff. It was, it was the very, very early stuff, you know, it, it really was. But it, but it, what, you know, the, during the 60s from, from 
I don't really remember very much because I was too young, you know, but, but looking back, it, it really progressed very quickly through the 60s, you know. Um, I remember in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, actually seeing hippies, you know, real hippies and wearing their, their kaftan coats and, and smelling so strongly of this uh, petulia oil. I, I remember that. Um, and my father, well, both my father and mother being artists, they were definitely a little bit more open-minded and, and alternative. And they, they were young. They both had me when, when they were just 19 years old, I was born. You know, so they were on their own crest of their wave of, of you know, the fashions and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, and it was, it was all going on. The whole Sergeant Pepper's look, uh, very high at that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just an interesting time. Like you're saying, quite a bit of condensed, uh, exponential change in a very short amount of time. Um, whether it's esoteric of the uh, East meets West kind of stuff, also psychedelics, people kind of dealing, you know, with uh, globalization in a very new way. Like even the fact that these Tibetans were coming to the south of France, that was, you know, Marco Polo didn't have that luxury or whatever. So. Um, very interesting, unique period. So, um, you said your uh, father's a photographer. What, what kind of art did your mother do? Uh, my mother's a, a painter, a very good painter. Um, yeah, she, she, she was, well, my father, my father's a potter to begin with. Very good potter. He's, he's extremely uh, talented man. Um, and it was f through photography that really drew him into Tibetan Buddhism because he was commissioned by the Tibetan Lamas at that time and sent to Sikkim in the Himalayas to photograph these um, the very high Lamas, formal photographs on their thrones. And, and he met the, the highest of the Lamas, one in particular, the 16th uh, Jalawa Karmapa, uh, who's the head of one of the, the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And indeed, the, the Karmapa, when um, I was about 14 years old, and his retinue came to the West, and my father's continued following them around and, and photographing them, um, usually with one of these big old plate cameras, you know. Um, I think it's a 4x5 four by, four by or, or something, format, uh, negatives, very big, so very high quality. And so I... I was kind of there with my dad, you know, as, as a young teenager, whilst he took these uh, photographs at, at these extraordinary uh, events and, and occasions where the first wave of, of Westerners who were interested in Buddhism were, were attending. And it's interesting because I think we, many of us then, or especially my parents, um, were attracted really for the more for the esoterics to begin with something different you know something unusual but they didn't uh, in the very beginning really fully appreciate the 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 depth that, uh, of of the buddha dharma you know that that came that came later um for example when some of the first lamas were invited to the uk to oxford uh, by the academics as far as the academics are concerned, it was more out of um, kindness to, to help them as refugees, you know. So they invited them thinking they were helping these lamas. But 
within a few months or years of the llamas being here, they, they realized actually the llamas were helping them. It's funny how that kind of cultural um, uh, enmeshment can occur. Uh, whether I'm thinking of about like, you know, the myths of Plymouth Rock in America, where it's like, oh, the pilgrims come over, we're going to modernize y'all. And it's like, no, we're going to starve and we need y'all's help. And whatever the first Thanksgiving quote unquote was, how I don't know how realistic that is ultimately. But anyway, um, so you weren't telling your friends too much about your kind of enamorment with um, the Buddhist kind of situation. When, uh, when you graduated, I'm presuming kind of primary school and stuff and uh, secondary school, uh, when did you start shifting? I mean, did you go to art school? Did you like, were, when did you start turning on to your gift as a uh, painter and stuff? I mean, obviously your mom and dad were artistic, so it seems like you're kind of a combination of the refinement of the photography and maybe the hands-on of the um, pottery with the element of paint. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it was in the blood. Um, and from a very, very young age, you know, so I was encouraged as, to be artistic, to be creative, uh, and it wasn't difficult for me you know, to be creative. So when I um, finished with my schooling, then I did go to uh, art college, uh, and that I did for um, five years. I was five years, and so I had the formal training in, in fine art. Um, and that was an interesting period as well, because in a culturally, uh, we seem to have a cultural kind of reference going on through this thread, but culturally at the time, that was during the, um, the late 70s and through the 80s. And so in Britain then, that was a very interesting time um, uh, to begin with punk when I was just leaving school and punk was the big thing. You know, and it moved through these different genres and, and, and fashions and political um, it, uh, as well. Um, All anyone has to really do is look at David Bowie and kind of see how quick the yeah. changes were happening. It's like, oh, <laughs> The Clash, as well as Queen, as well as Zeppelin, as well. You know, it's like a lot of, um, a lot of. I mean, everything from Wembley Arena Rock to, like, you know, Mohawks and Pierced Faces uh, exactly. was happening. Exactly. And I, I loved all that stuff, you know, I was at art college and, and fashionable myself, a bit of a trendsetter, like I used to <laughs> like to think. Um, but what I found, found is that, you know, um, I'd had an offer. I don't think I said this publicly, actually. Um, I'd had an offer just when I was coming to the end of my um, uh, Bachelor of Arts uh, at, uh, at, at art college in fine art um, from uh some rich entrepreneur in New York City who had seen the work I was doing and it was kind of involved a bit with fashion as well. I was uh printing on fabrics and things. I have to say mostly uh Tibetan sort of iconography on, on fabrics. And he he offered me um to fly me to New York and to set me up with my own fashion house. Because, you know, an English, young English guy in New York would be quite popular. Right? Brilliant, I think, is the term, right? So, but as, as I was applying for the visa and all this sort of thing, you know, I started to get a little bit wary. And I thought, really? Is this really the direction I want to go? And I, actually, in hindsight, I'm really glad I didn't go, you know, because... I don't know how long I would have lasted there. It's, it was, 
uh, the the 80s Studio 54 in in, in New York and and there's a lot pretty going intense on. scene <laughs> really intense and you know would I probably have died of HIV or something by now uh, so you know I just don't know but who knows but at that time um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was was visiting. Just when I, I was uh, finishing my, my uh, school in, in the arts, and he, he visited the same town my, my university was at. And so I cut my hair, uh, sort of tidied myself up. I made myself a, a Tibetan chuba, which is a traditional lay dress. Uh, the, 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 you know, it's quite long robe tied together with a belt, very long sleeves, and this little sort of, uh, you could say... Uh, Chinese collar to it, Chinese style. And so I'd smite myself up and I, and I went to see the, the Dalai Lama. And whilst I was there, there's this other Tibetan Lama who is a, a very close friend of my father, knew us as a family um, for a few years prior to that. You could say he was our family Lama, you know, like you have a family priest that you, you always go to for you know, ceremonies and to ask advice and this and that, um, blessings and consecrations. And, um, but he was the founding lama, and he was called Akon Rinpoche, uh, w one of the lamas who came to, um, to be in, in the UK quite early on. And he, he saw me approaching the Dalai Lama for a breath, blessing or, you know, smartened up. And um, he sent a message, and he said that he'd foreseen that I was would be a monk myself in a in a very near future. And I was really shocked by this news because all my life, since I met these Tibetan lamas way back when I was a kid in the Dordogne in France, all my life, my secret most secret wish was to become a monk because, as I explained earlier, I saw that as a means to be truly happy, to study and practice Dharma. And these old wizened monks were, were happy. And so that was my motivation. I, I wanted to be a, a sane, happy person. Who doesn't? So um, within a year, I became a Buddhist monk and I just turned 22 and then I, I went and stayed in one of the first uh, established uh, Buddhist centers, monasteries, um, which is up in Scotland and started my training uh, as, as a monk. And because I had this artistic hand, then um, it was natural for me to uh, work with a Tibetan master of arts there as a, an apprentice and, and to learn uh, all the, the Buddhist iconography, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, if you don't know, Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism is, is one of the, the richest in, in the imagery and iconography uh, and ceremonies and, and symbolism. And it's very, very rich and diverse, so plenty of room uh, for myself as an artist. Right, it seems like not only... Um... I mean, it seems like your fashion sense uh, helped you kind of play the part when the Dalai Lama came through and the guy saw you. Very magical mystery tour kind of um, 
you know, we've seen you, we know you're supposed to come here. When he went up to Scotland, was that kind of a, um, I mean, did they know right away, like, oh, you're the dude we need for this kind of gig? Uh, you have the art hand, or was it kind of like a, a gauntlet? Like, did you have to prove yourself like Harry Potter style to Dumbledore? How'd that work? Uh, no, I didn't have to prove myself, luckily. Um, yeah, I was invited up. They could see. I just finished my degree show uh, at art college, and, and the degree show even was is, is like an installation that I made based on um, old, um, birth, you know, old age, sickness, and death. Um, these fundamental stages of life, which which Buddha taught, you know, we're talking about samsara. So I based my degree show on this, and and the the lamas had seen that, and the printed cloths and and screen printing and decoration and all sorts of things, and um, they were building at the time the one of the first uh, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries or temples uh, in Scotland. So I was invited to help really decorate that that's nice kind of ground crew um they saw uh, a shine of their own kind of resonance in you uh it's funny because i i mean i don't know how much you were paying attention it's fun if you don't remember but this is a empress card which is the uh it's technically the fourth because the zero card is a fool card but uh it's number three and you were saying that you went into kind of a three year three month three day um situation uh before popping out and your mom saying, oh, you're back to the alien I thought you were, or whatever. Um, so threes seem to be a big deal. Uh, Raphael, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I know in the Galactic Heritage cards it talks about vague and mysticism kind of being, uh, and I don't know, Tashi, how into like aliens and maybe transdimensional beings and stuff like that you are, um, but in this kind of uh, deck that we both have, it's kind of alien um, starsy kind of stuffs. Uh, the Vega, like star, which is actually, I don't know if you've seen Jodie Foster in Contact, that's the civilization quote-unquote that she's dealing with vega anyway um rafael the vegans are kind of attributed as to having kind of more the stoic um mysticism of the east um did you have any kind of thoughts on that front maybe anything you've heard about um origins in your uh, from your perspective um so I'm, not, I'm asking Raphael. Uh, just, uh, I want to get him involved, firstly, and secondarily, um, and I want to get into uh, kind of ontological kind of mapping what Buddhism means and stuff like that, Tashi. But uh, for now, this question is kind of directed at Raphael. I'm just kind of curious, Raphael, if you had any illuminations on that front. Cool. Yeah, so the vegans generally are associated, as you say, with one would say Eastern spirituality or the inner path in opposition to deliverance which are within the galactic history, the idea of even first accessing third density. However, we don't even need to go so far back. I mean, even just on the face of it, it is called Vajrayana Buddhism, right? And the Vajra in itself is like, in my view, at least one of these literal, I would say, ultra symbols and the idea being that we don't even have to go so far back as to potential, you know, star seed ideas and so on. But even just the concept that maybe not so long ago, there was some sort of a more unified religion or religious system and mysticism, which then was only split up and conserved partially by the mystic traditions of varying religions, where in which as to the feeling that I'm getting, 
Vajrayana Buddhism is one of those, let's say, esoteric sects that are not only there for, you know, exoteric placation of the masses or something, but that actually are containing quite a lot of wisdom, even just starting with the very symbol itself. I mean, there's a lot to say about it. And we spoke a little bit about it with uh, Sifu Boggy Brighton. Therefore, I would just like to ask you, Tashi, whatever associations, you know, whether historical, mythological, symbolic, intuitive, or personal, that you have with that symbol and what it represents uh, to you, the Vajra in, in particular as well, or any other symbols that you enjoy, as I'm aware that the iconography is awesome. <laughs> yeah, the Vajra, um, it's sometimes uh, translated as a, a thunderbolt, but it, it represents uh, something powerful, something very, very strong. Um, it also is a, a translator's diamond, you know. So as a diamond is one of the hardest uh, materials on, the, on the, the planet, you know, incredibly strong. Um, but the symbolism is, is, the, uh, is the, the, you know, fully polished and, and cut diamond that shines so brightly and clearly and purely is is represents your uh, it, potential of enlightenment uh, you could say buddhahood and so quite literally you know we we are all rough diamonds you know we all have that potential so through the the vajrayana practice uh, the visualization and the meditation the purification we are cleaning and polishing that rough diamond you know, to, to shine bright as this complete awakening, awakened being uh, that's useful for everybody else. And I, I think that's, that's what the Vajra means uh, in Tibetan. That's called Benza. Uh, <laughs> they, they call it Benza because they don't have the V, the v um, sound in the uh, Tibetan. Uh, alphabet. Of course, I would talk about this being a, a Tibetan calligrapher, uh, but the sounds they don't have. So it became not Vajra, but Badra and then Benza. So they pronounce it uh, Benza, but it, it has the, the same the same meaning, yes. It's fascinating how um, cultures can, I mean, even linguistic uh, etymologies can kind of uh, vary over time. It's funny, it seems um, this is the whole Tower of Babel kind of mythos and Christian uh, liturgy or whatever. Uh, it seems like we're coming from this kind of unified consciousness. And I don't know how you believe in terms of presuppositions, if this is like yugas and we're falling into ignorance and we're all confused and speaking different languages from a pure tongue or whatever. But in, even in a strict uh, materially reductionistic kind of academic lens, um, just the etymology and the and – the, uh, the evolution, I mean, you, as you know, India is not terribly far away, but the difference between uh, India and, you know, um, China and Tibet, and all these cultures, uh, there's great difference. And it seems like Tibet is almost like a uh, time capsule in a way, like it's so far removed um, that it was able to kind of, uh, it has its own evolution within its own systems, but it seems like it kind of, uh, because of the Himalayas, uh, it, it, it's it's tucked away and just kind of did its own thing as the world kept on kept on turning or whatever 
Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, yeah, ge geographically, it's protected by, you know, the Himalayas. And, and um, I think there's also the Himalayas are still pushing up. There's this great immense energy, you know, uh, tectonic energy that, this, that uh, I think energizes the people. And, and you're, you're high up in the mountains, the air is clear, the altitude. Um, and it, I think it's much easier to become um, a yogi and enlightened in these places. Uh, and because it was difficult to invade, you know, the, the Buddha Dharma, which did migrate from India to, to Tibet um, over a thousand years ago, more in, and, and, and many of the teachings uh, since, uh, they, they were practiced and um, really um, nurtured and saved. M meanwhile, Buddhism was wiped out uh, in, in India, um, and then uh, it, was, it was only later that communism, you know, that, that really pushed pushed Buddhism out. Uh, and in a way, it's a ble blessing that, that it, it was. It would have been nice not to be quite so uh, violent, um, but it it, um, it pushed pushed alarms out to the rest of the world, so we can all all benefit and you know share their their great wealth and depth of, of wisdom and share how to practice to overcome um, this uh, uh, negativities and in, in, in one word samsara it's funny um, I'm not like a, a full fledged flat earther by any means I don't know if you've ever heard of this conspiracy theory but I was watching yes. a documentary the other day and actually the Vajra symbol is um, very much in line with this guy's model which I like I said I don't believe in it but it was compelling enough to you know catch my intrigue um where basically the idea is and i'm not going to get into all of it but like there's some physics of plasma going on uh and that that the vajrana symbol um or the vajra rather symbol is uh or bajra as you would say um is a plasma bolt like it is i mean when it translates to thunderbolt like this and I'm not saying this is the case or not. This gets really tricky. Like, what is real? What is true history? Are there multiple dimensions of actuality going on uh, where some things could be true in one domain as opposed to not true for the, you know, democratized, quote, others or whatever? Um, but, yeah, that symbol has to do, in this guy's estimation, um, why it's so important back then was because basically large-scale plasma um, – shit was going down and that's kind of why i mean in this i don't know if you've ever heard of the electric universe model and stuff like that but um, mm. stuff like the grand canyon and things that look like they maybe have eroded over a long time or, and stuff on mars maybe particularly mm. the astro boil um, might be due to ultimately like scarification from high voltage situations uh which most people wouldn't necessarily conclude just you know naturally but i'm not pushing that on you don't worry um so i'm kind of curious like okay so you go up to the scottish thing you do your gig there um how was that overall and then when did you start like i mean it seems like you went for a decade or so to uh tibet so how did that transition occur um, yeah, I wasn't so long in, in Tibet. It was it was a, a one-off visit. Um, yeah, I mean the Tibetans were were in in, in the UK, and meanwhile uh, Buddhism is was persecuted in in Tibet. So I went there as a pilgrimage at one time, um, which is very uh, inspiring. But sure, I was I was in the monastery myself as a monk for uh, seventeen years, and uh, it, it was time to sort of 
move on, you know, time to, I, I like to ex, uh, explain that, you know, sometimes you just need to stretch. And I had, uh, I'd been a monk all my adult life, you know. And, 17 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah, I get it. it well, it's, it doesn't feel it now, you know. It's, it, it went very quickly, but it, it was certainly a, um, a good amount of time to, to learn. So before we talk about your dipping out of that place, I'm curious, I mean, what was the quality um, of education? Like, did, did it go like a dream or did, you know, five years seem like hell? Like, how did that feel? Um, were you kind of just like, what am I doing? Or did you feel like right where you needed to be? No, right where I needed to be. You know, um, there were very, very few uh, Western monks and nuns at, at that time. Um, when these waves of, of Tibetan lands came over, I, I was pretty spoiled, really. I used to get their undivided attention um, and they would kind of dote on me this young kind of cute monk and English and, and he can speak a bit of Tibetan and you know they, they teach me they teach me a lot and just by being with them you learn a lot as well and I was a personal attendant to, to Akarim Shai for seven years and we, we did travel around um, Europe and to, to Russia and other places around the world uh, as his attendants and, and it's like um, a cultural attaché kind of thing uh, yeah i guess so yeah um was uh, that cool i mean yeah was I, the idea I, for you guys to show like kind of i mean was it a human zoo in the sense of like this is what we do and you guys have no clue and check us out kind of thing <laughs> no no it wasn't like that it was more more to we weren't going around preaching or anything like that it was more visiting uh, other buddhist centers we're, we're invited we're invited so it was, it was um, uh, emerging Western Buddhists, you could say. So like kind of a solidarity slash um, maybe, you know, um, not aid, that's a strong word, but kind of like, uh, you know, support, like you're saying. Support, yeah, support. People needed to learn the practices and, and to be guided in meditation um, and instructed in particular practices. So um, before this podcast, I kind of I didn't do a major amount of homework. Like I said, I, I'm you know up to snuff and uh, to the degree that I feel cogent to talk about comparative religions. But I'm really not that. I mean, Buddhism can come in so many flavors, from Zen, Alan Watts kind of flavor to what you're talking about to you know many others. Um, and it, and I'm, uh, I think the guy's name was Shinzen. I'm not sure, but um, there was this guy who's a Westerner who's I think a Vajrayana Buddhist, and he was talking about. Um, kind of this process of uh, finding his deity by dropping a flower on a on a mandala full of deities. Is that something that you experienced? Uh, not not personally. That's one way you can do it. I mean, that sounds very uh, kind of a very poetic way to do it. Normally, you'd have a, a personal teacher, a lama, qualified lama, um, and they would guide you with your practice, and so they would recommend your deity which is your practice, your main meditation um, deity, uh, symbolic, which is especially within the, the Vajrayana. Is that something you could speak upon, or is that kind of like uh, top secret files for your own gnosis kind of stuff? No, it's not, it's not top secret. Um, the way, What's that process like? Were you a deist at all before then, or were you like, this is weird, I have to attach now to a god and no, uh, I, I was, or whatever? <laughs> No, no, I was, I was, um, I, I really took to it, and it, it didn't seem alien to me uh, at all. Um, 
I think perhaps what helped is that I'm a very visual person, so seeing images of these different Buddhas and deities with several arms, you know, eight arms or four arms. And, um, but I think very, very early on, I, I did learn or, or realize that it's all symbolic. You know, you, you, in order to practice it, you need to take it quite seriously, but it is really ultimately um, a skillful means of, of a new set of conditioning on our life, uh, more positive, more sacred conditioning that we adopt, which helps us get from A to B, you know, from, from samsara, uh, from, you know, um, to nirvana, to enlightenment. So, you know, the, the Buddha taught these different yanas, the Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, um, as different paths, you could say, or different vehicles um, to become um, liberated. Uh, and not, a, not everybody can kind of get this, this very esoteric color for uh, lots of images, different deities. Not everyone gets that, you know, so perhaps it's not suited for them. Perhaps they should practice the Hinayana. But, he, but Buddha, Lord Buddha did generally recognize that there's different uh, capacities of understanding. Um, so it was introduced, he introduced these three major yanas, these three major vehicles. Uh, the Vajrayana actually uh, cannot really exist without the other two Hinayanas. It's not like in the Christian faith where, you know, there's Catholics and Protestants that sort of like clash with each other. Um, the 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 yanas are, are interrelated. There's a nice example with with this is that the hinayana, which is generally practiced in the southern um, uh, Asian countries, and it not purposely, it just it just happened, you know, evolved like that because it's it suited the climate of the culture, the the people. Uh, and the hinayana is more to do with you could say very rough terms. Very simple terms is is the, the the discipline to tame the mind, you know, and so you have these monks in the yellow or the saffron robes, you know, being very very disciplined, and so then that's the hinayana, and then the mahayana is is the to do with more to do with your motivation. So you're actually um, you're on the path to enlighten enlightenment to help everybody else along the path to enlightenment. So you have the bodhisattva concepts where you know, you take a solemn vow to help all other beings to enlightenment before your own enlightenment. You sacrifice your own enlightenment because it's out of compassion, you know, out of loving kindness. And so that's that's more uh, um, a, a yana of sustenance, you could say. And then the, the vajrayana is, is, is like the rocket. It's like the skillful means um, by doing these weird and wonderful practices, you can actually get yourself from A to B very, very quickly. However, it is potentially dangerous. And that's why you need the other uh, yanas of the support. You need the discipline. You need the, the right motivation, which is the loving kindness. And then you can practice Vajrayana properly. Otherwise, you're just feeding your ego. You know, you, you, you just become a, a big, bad practitioner, uh, uh, you know, so that that's the that, that's one of the dangers you could say. Mm, so the example, as I said, I was going to give, is that the hinayana is like the vessel, 
is like a bowl. And the bowl holds the, um, the sustenance, the liquid, which is the Mahayana, which is the, to benefit all beings. And the reflection of the moon in the water, not the moon itself, but the reflection in the water is the Vajrayana, the skillful means, which shouldn't be taken as something solid. So, of course, without the vessel, you can't hold the water. There's no reflection. That's how they are interrelated. Well put. I'm glad you kind of walked us through that. Um, it's interesting uh, because, I mean, like you were saying, many kind of um, modes of thinking and maps of reality kind of, it's tricky because on the one hand, on a positively polarized sense, like clearly giraffes are not dolphins. So, you know, the way of a giraffe is different than the way of a dolphin or something like that. You know, we could say in terms of like you were saying, um, Southern uh, Asia maybe has a different kind of need or um, trajectory, even culturally. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, uh, it sounds like, and I really do appreciate like where it's like, you know, you kind of got to get, you got to kind of wake up out of kind of the dream, I guess, in a way and get, more severe in a sense and that's like a level of it and then another level of it pops out of that it's like well i don't want to just be an asshole uh you know i want to be a nice guy and i want to help other people now that i've kind of you know done my workout spiritually and i'm ripped like arnold schwarzenegger like what do i do with these muscles you know that kind of thing like do i lift up the uh, car for the little old lady or whatever um and then ultimately it seems like uh the more kind of um, i don't want to say shamanistic uh to say that the others aren't but it seems like more magical shamanistic kind of yes, um, yes. you know almost uh psychedelic dare i say um <laughs> kind of flavoring is what you're participating in um let's go ahead and take a quick music break and when sure. we come back we'll kind of talk about some stuff you can get some tea uh you know go to the bathroom if you need to or whatever okay pick this song i mean hopefully you don't hate it now that i'm realizing how not into uh british culture at one point you are i mean you are a brit um but zeppelin is one of my favorite bands this is an underrated zeppelin song called bronwyn <laughs> stomp i know that you're in wales and i think bronwyn is kind of a welsh term so it's that so hopefully you enjoy welcome back it's funny i forgot i mean i turned on to playing guitar my brother's a drummer he got turned on by john bonham uh we were in middle school we're musicians still um and i don't listen to them very often and that shit just hits so hard i mean on the one hand it's a song about i think his dog (laughs) and he's like oh we're gonna walk down the lane and i'll call your name and you're a good dog kind of thing um but on the other hand, it was weird hearing it. It has this weird combination of obviously um, post-Robert Johnson, American blues, transatlantic kind of, you know, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page kind of, you know, what they did with the blues kind of essentially. But even with the open tuning of the guitar and kind of the rhythms a little, um, I mean, it was a kind of upbeat kind of, um, you know, shire music, if you want to put it that way, or, you know, folky. Uh, but it still it had this weird I had never heard it before until now it had this kind of um, Eastern quality. I mean, it's the best way to put it. It didn't sound like sitars. Well, I won't go that far, but it had this kind of awareness. And I don't know how I don't know how conscious it was on their part. Um, but if you had slowed that down and done a few different things uh, and maybe not made it so peppy uh, or they had not made it so peppy, it, it would have sounded, you know, very kind of like, you know, chanting drone music of the east more uh and i'd never heard that so hopefully you enjoyed that i did that's what's up so um rafael i'm kind of curious uh at that analogy he was talking about between the three schools if anything stuck out to you 
um, and how you process that in terms of, you know, people designing their lives um, for highest excitement and stuff like that. Not exactly sure what you mean. Um, well, I guess it seems that uh, in the fool's journey of everybody's life, we all kind of go through um, wisening and hardening phases like that first school. And then we kind of kick into a compassionate mode during maybe a midlife crisis. It doesn't have to be so, but like when we start realizing, oh my God, we're all on this thing together. It's not so much about my ambitions and uh, success in the world stage and you know, getting ripped or whatever. So like maybe the severity wanes into a compassion and then it seems maybe in older life we have the, you know, the giggle of of the fool card coming back or the archaic smile of the Buddha kind of like, you know, woke and hip to the whole situation at a fundamentally different octave. Um, I guess I'm wondering, uh, Raphael or Tashi, whoever wants to talk about it, uh, do you guys look at that as something that everybody goes through individually as well as collectively? Um in the Bashar kind of sense, uh, which is this uh, channeled being uh, by Daryl Anka that Raphael is pretty into, that he's turned me on to. Um, uh, how would I put it? It seems like permission slips, I guess is what I'm kind of getting to. Um, how did you, did you view it all, like those three stages with permission slips in terms of uh, a progression of permission slips or, you know, getting not stuck. It's a strong word, but like situated in, a, in one of those schools and then being like, I permit myself to do this and nothing else. Or you know, if you catch my drift now, it's very simple. Use what works for you. And the issue usually arises if parts are ignored and it is pretended that it is pretended that the totality of life or the Tao is less than what it is. And then people become frightened of certain aspects or ignore them or starve themselves of those aspects. And that's in my view, usually when the imbalance occurs and otherwise you just follow your own lead, you follow the Tao and then, you know, whatever school you may find yourself in or whatever way you find yourself leaning towards in any particular moment, then is appropriate. I think it's very simple. There is actually in my view, nothing to over intellectualize and also potentially not too much to generalize about this either. Interesting, because uh, it seems, I mean, and it's like there's, like you're saying, it is what it is, um, so there's no wrong way, but it seems some people's, some people's paths are very strenuous, require um, a lot of learning through a certain school, um, and they get to a place where other people maybe just dwell in that zone already um, in a weird way. I guess, uh, Tashi, what are your thoughts on um, the idea of striving within an illusion um, and maybe even just with, like, you know, hierarchies? Like, uh, it seems from my kind of ignorant perspective, it seems like we're all Buddha. I mean, in a sense, like Buddha is a potential within each of us. Um, and then I guess somebody turned on their fucking superpowers of observation and kind of articulation to the point where they said, you can do this too. Uh, here's ways to do it. So Tashi, I'm kind of curious how you look at maybe process lineage, um, you know, how superfluous are these things ultimately, uh, versus like necessary for each kind of person going on their trip. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. You know, um, I mean, basically we're, we're in this, we're all in this together. Um, and it is a process of, of waking up, um, it really is uh, choosing which which path um, suits you 
best is, is it's a very per personal um, choice, of course. I guess maybe a better way to put that would uh, were there and this is getting real personal, but hey, it's an emperor's card situation. So uh, this is you know you learn through mistakes, we learn through kind of attachments and stuff like that. How how on your journey um, were there certain methods or you know you know ways of going about things that you were very into at one point, and then you said, kind of like you were saying, I want to stretch uh, after seventeen years. Did did you feel like you kind of got the lesson and that it, not that it's not worthwhile like it still has value in the process um but were there anything that you can recall in your journey where you're like i really put a lot of emphasis on that and that's not really what the point is i guess anymore uh, if you catch my drift yeah it wasn't exactly like that um i think i think i felt that i'd been sitting on my fluffy meditation cushion for long enough you know and i needed to put into practice all that I've been practicing, you know, to be out there in the real world, as it were. I, I tell you, I, there is there is an example actually. Um, I was asked to uh, lead workshops and give teachings, um, instructions on meditation, and there was a point with me, a very definite point, where I it kind of came to me. I was sitting there on. Uh, you know, not exactly a throne, but it was a seat slightly elevated, higher than all these people in front of me that I was teaching. You're you're a monk, you know. You're a member of the the sangha, so that you are kind of you are put on a pedestal um, because you represent the Buddha uh, Dharma uh, and teaching Dharma. Um, and there was a point where. I was kind of listening to questions at the end of a, a teaching that I gave, a Buddhist teaching. And these, I, was, I was aware that people were from all walks of life, and they're from all different backgrounds, from different cities, from different countries, all together. And some of the questions they were asking was more really asking advice of, how to live their life, how to deal with difficulties in life, um, but quite ordinary, ordinary things. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, hmm, I feel kind of a bit of a fraud here giving them advice because I've not really experienced those you know, ordinary, everyday difficulties in life, such as, you know, each month, month finding enough money to pay the rent or pay the bills or how to pay the bills and all these sort of things. So I, I was aware that perhaps I was a little bit kind of uh, comfortable on my meditation cushion and somewhat institutionalized. So I challenged that to myself and I said, well, you know, I, I'm giving advice to these people when I don't really, really understand properly or haven't experienced where they're coming from. So how can I give really proper, sound advice? And that was kind of a, a changing point within myself. You know, it's time to get up and to, to get out. 
Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, yeah, it is interesting when, um, and not to say this is exactly what you mean, but when, you know, something that's vibrant and new and meaningful um, comes to a point of not full ossification, but almost, you know, it's it can be detached or um, it's tricky because I'm sure there's things that Buddha would have said that would have resonate with how to, you know, deal with, you know, your wife who keeps hitting you or whatever you know it's like that kind of stuff like it seems like everyday kind of stuff um and uh, i'm not sure if the dichotomy is a false one on my part but we tend to be like you know mundane versus um exalted or you know uh holy or however one was with that and uh it can get tricky because i think uh same thing with any kind of subculture um it can kind of start huffing its own fumes in a weird way and kind of doing a feedback loop uh, and not to say that these things are bad. I'm not really saying that it's just like, um, for example, even with psychedelics, uh, it's one thing to like, you know, smoke weed and, or, you know, trip on mushrooms or whatever and have an experience. And then some people are like, well, everybody needs to do this. Like I've had this gnosis or this epiphany and this is amazing. And I mean, I used, I've done this. I've proselytized psychedelics very hard for a long time. That's what team rabbit hole kind of started as, uh, essentially like going down the rabbit hole and talking about experiences and stuff. Um, and it, I've kind of come to a place now where it's weird, uh, and it, it wouldn't have gotten—I couldn't have gotten here any other way. It doesn't seem. But um, on the one hand, there's value to these experiences, but I can't expect everybody to be wanting the same kind of experience. Uh, not to say that I still think everybody should trip or you know get high once in their life just to see how wildly dramatic. Same thing with meditation, is you—I'm sure you know—or astral projection, dream work, all that kind of stuff. It's like life is not quite what you think it, and if you kind of get into a certain rhythm, we can delude ourselves into that rhythm. And paradoxically, simultaneously, life might not be what we, what our uh, egos dream it up as and paint it up as, and it might be much more simple. Um, so it, it's kind of a both and. So it's it, it's it's funny, um, you know. So I'm not running around telling everybody they're losers if they haven't tripped. It's not quite like that anymore. Um, I used to have more of a hubris about it, being like, "You guys just don't know." Uh, now I'm kind of like, "Well, they're exactly where they need to be," and I hopefully, you know, they're willing and open to experiences. But maybe that isn't on their docket for this lifetime or whatever. So it's kind of an interesting thing. It sounded like, uh, you know, you I don't I can't speak for you, but it sounded like you got to a place where you're like this is almost too detached from practical reality and I needed to dump, jump back into practical reality and maybe not be so immersed in the um, the effulgence of the uh, high drama of spirituality which can happen in any kind of culture it seems. Yeah, it, it was more of a, a personal challenge to myself rather than criticism of, of you know, the institution that had carried me. You know, it was really it was my personal um spiritual path that I felt that I needed to be um, challenged in that way. Um, so, yes, that's, yeah, that's about right. Well, I'm glad you were open to your own uh, challenge. So, I mean, that's the hardest part, right, where it's like, uh, I think we can get comfortable. Uh, and it sounded like when you started feeling not, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounded like you hit a point where like, hmm, let me redo this for a second and try it from another. I mean, Jim, approach. if you listen closely, it's actually very yeah. simple. And actually, let me know if I interpret this wrong. Because you I'm were wrong. simply, well, I mean, the way it sounded to me is you were simply interested in being of service and realized that by to be able to truly empathize, you would, you know, wish for some experiences also in this life to be able to actually give better advice, right? Simple yeah, as that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It is as simple as that. It is. Word. 
it's like a Dear Abby column. Very helpful. Maybe not the most uh, high pageantry in terms of presentation, but it works. <laughs> so um, I've been paying attention. We could shift it to art. I mean, I kind of, I mean, Raphael, were there any kind of particular Buddhist philosophical questions you had to ask? Um, I We could go down that rabbit hole. We could talk about your art, I'm, wherever you guys kind of want to go. What may be interesting, but I'm not sure. I mean, you spoke a little bit about your journey. Maybe if there is anything else you already mentioned now with your willingness to empathize and kind of, I guess, enter kind of the free market, maybe you briefly want to mention the shift you made here. And otherwise, if there is anything in general that you may have noticed, because I can only imagine, as you yourself stated, you've had quite a different life than what would be normal in terms of I don't even know what's normal anymore <laughs> in 2021. Yeah. But yeah. any of the divergences or even anything now that you would observe from your vantage point that's particularly striking to you? Um, yeah, because I can only yeah. imagine there's a lot of difference in differential in perspective to, you know, a common perspective. Yeah, I guess I, I mean, obviously, because I am coming from a different perspective and that I've had an experience which is quite very unusual for, for a Western guy. Um, I think, first of all, I can say that leaving the monastery was was more difficult than entering it, you know, entering back into the, the real world and having to pick up the pieces from where I left off, you could say, when I was 20 years old, to, and then just very quickly relearn all the life skills that you need to get on, like paying tax and stuff like that. Um, that was quite interesting, but it, but it, I was quite fearless. Um, I had this inner confidence, not arrogance. I didn't think I was at, you know better than anybody else, but I had this inner confidence because of all the years of, of introspectively looking at myself, turning on myself, and you know really uh, working on taming my mind and becoming a, a good more helpful, peaceful person, um, I think, and, and also very, very patient when you do a four-year retreat, a three-year retreat, um, you certainly learn um, patience, and you certainly learn whatever you do and say, how it affects your fellow retreatants, you know, so you really learn yourself. Um, and coming back out into the real world, you know, these are fantastic tools and credentials to, to get on in the real world. And, and I did have this, this confidence and I, I threw myself into London um, uh, as an artist, you know, I thought, well, what can I do? Yeah, I'm, I'm artistic, I'll be an artist. Uh, and I, I, have a, I had a, a good story to tell. And, and um, yeah, I got noticed, you know, people, people who already... Uh, successful there in the art world, um, you know, noticed me and um, kind of carried me along. It was it was more sort of not so much in the fine art; it was more in the Asian art and and in the fashion world as well. I, I befriended uh, Isabella Blow, um, very famous uh, fashion um, icon, you could say, and um, with. Uh, Alexander McQueen and people like this. And they were very intrigued by me um, from where I came from. They'd never met somebody quite like me because of my background. 
and that that's really carried me through that you know if you get noticed that there must be a thousand and one people trying to be an artist you know tens of thousands of people photographers and artists trying to be artists trying to make make their way and, and get noticed and be successful it wasn't my motivation to be successful but for sure if you're going to play that game you know you have to play the game and um yeah, they, they, they sat up and they, they noticed. And, and because I had this inner confidence, I, you know, I was, I was in my late 30s, 38 or something like that, but I was running around like I was 21. You know, I had this energy and this enthusiasm and, and, and I, yeah, fearless. Do you think it had something to do with, like, making up for lost time culturally because you had been on the mat meditating for a decade or whatever, or two decades almost? Or was was it just like, oh, this is my dharma, I need to be doing this now? Did you feel just, like, in flow? Yeah, I just felt like I was in flow. I wasn't making up for lost time, and that's kind of silly. I, you know, I, yeah, I was in the flow. I was just, that's what I'm doing. I have this opportunity. Let's do it. I mean, my teacher always used to say to me, you know, not literally, but he says, if you're going to be a thief, you know, don't bother with a corner shop, you know, rob a bank. In other words, whatever you do, do it to the full. It's like go big or go home kind of thing. Sorry? Go big or go home is a, an American yeah, yeah. kind of statement. Yeah. How have you um, found, uh, uh, did you find keeping your practice uh, difficult when you entered the kind of matrix, so to speak, at that level? I know um, it's funny because a lot of hippie kind of, you know, whatever kind of uh, avant-garde types tend to be like, screw the man, money's the worst, uh, you know, owning a home is terrible, uh, these kinds of things, or however maybe the general cliches go. Um, did you find it like a cognitive dissonance? Did you feel like uh, confused or that you were betraying ideals, or did you feel that you were just equipped now, How, like you know, you were walking through the gauntlet better than you would had you not done the preparation prior? Yeah, exactly. You you answered my question by your last sentence there. Yeah, you you you're much better equipped. Um, you can see everything's a dream anyway. You know, it's it's a it's one big game. You're not taking it too seriously. You know, you you're relying. I was relying. Uh, one relies on their their Buddha nature. You know, you have a, a better motivation anyway. Um, so yeah, it's um, it, it helps. It, it you know those many, many years of, of me being a monk it was a bit like boot camp in a way, uh, a very peaceful boot camp that gives you many great tools of, of patience and, and uh, yeah, and if I dare say, some wisdom. Uh, oh, you I, could totally say that. Seems like the case. <laughs> it seems like qualifications. I mean, in almost in an, in an inverted sense where most people are like, okay, I have to strive and, you know, get really good at xyz and it seems like you kind of um i mean i know it's more maybe of a hindu philosophy but like neti neti not this not this and once you realize like what you aren't you can kind of work with what you are that diamond self yeah ex exactly i mean you know talking practical i i needed to get a job and it's uh, money you know I, you can't just be a successful artist straight away you have to support yourself in that time you know i did teach yoga for a while and and you know i applied for other jobs where I'd had to, for the first time, write a CV. And I sat there scratching my head. Well, you know, well, what do I write? Uh, I've been in a monastery for 17 years, you know, and, uh, and are the employers going to accept that? You know, do, do they realize that actually it's quite a good, 
qualification because you, you, you learn how to deal with people and all their emotions and you learn how to be incredibly patient. And there's all these sort of qualities that you, that you, that you adapt uh, of being a monk. Yeah. I guess Go ahead. overall one can say that, especially in modern education, there is just even more compartmentalization and learning of data. However, what is often completely missed and let's just say not encouraged at all in any institutionalized school I'm aware of is aspects like simply put emotional maturity. And of course, then it very much depends on the employer whether or not they recognize that as a value. I was about to say if I would you know, be responsible for personnel, those would be the one immediately shortlisted, right? Because these are like real quali qualifications in a sense, everything else you can just, you know, learn in the book. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, you, you hit the, the nail on the head there. And, and I think it's changing, quite honestly. I think it, it's, it's more enlightened, enlightened these days. You know, we have uh, mindfulness and um, practices and, and uh, which is right through on all the levels of business now and even in the governments and meditation is so much more popular than it that it ever was and you've got uh, you know um these meditation apps you can you can use and and everything it's, it's there's a lot lot more awareness now i mean if i think if i'd finished being a monk just just last year uh, and entering this world now i i would have got on um, I don't know whether I got on better or quicker. I don't know because it's more, I think I, I'd be less sort of uh, unique, <laughs> you could say, because it is much more known these days. But I think you're, you're, you're right, Raphael, that uh, um, the education system is, is uh, yeah, the, the qualifications isn't really set in the right places. It's just, in a sense, just readily apparent if you look at however populations, companies, whatever, and you can just see, okay, where are they lacking? You know, usually it's in compassion and so on and self-reflection and uh, spiritual connection, all of those things that one would learn in a, you know, properly organized monastery, I imagine. So, yeah, that's yes, why I'm mentioning it. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Well, it seems almost like there's been a, a more enmeshment of the Eastern principles into Western culture at this point, where it was might have maybe exotic and very, I mean, the differences were stark when your parents were turning on to it. Um, at this point, like you're saying, the culture, uh, the global culture, I don't know if I would go as far as saying it's more enlightened, but uh, maybe the yuga's ending. I don't know how you it's guys It's at least been become hip to do yoga and stuff. You know, well, it's beyond just hip. I think in the sixties and seventies, it was like, oh, yoga is a hip thing because it's novel. Whereas people now are maybe aware of the qualitative difference of reality. Plus, we're you know, I mean, everything from post Matrix films to post twenty twelve Mayan calendars to you know, like I said, yoga, the zeitgeist might be um, more like the the field is more plowable, like tillable at this point. Whereas maybe you know, in the eighties, when it's all about cocaine and fucking you know, stock markets and stuff only, um, more or less, then it was a lot, like it was so alien and less desirable for mindfulness and things like that. That just wasn't the uh, value of the time. And, um, you know, it seems like we shifted kind of values into some kind of chimera of Eastern Western thing. I mean, people, you know, like I'm imagining, you know, people um, who are more traditional Buddhists 
whether they're from Tibet or wherever, who use the internet or who, you know, have email and that kind of stuff. Um, so they're not like, it's not a cultural kind of like, they're, they're globalized in a sense. And then, the, and because of their coming in, playing with the markets and showing people how the other half live or whatever, um, the, uh, you know, the Western kind of capitalistic, you know, imperial kind of model is softening or something. I mean, it's not perfect clearly, but it's, it seems like mindfulness and, um, you know, personal development, compassion, these things are hopefully not just like fads, I guess that's the way I'm putting it. No, I think you're right. The 70s, 80s, 80s, somewhat the 90s as well, was the, were ages of discovery, you know, people experimenting and finding out. And now, you know, um, in the new millennium, then we, we are, it, it's these philosophies and these practices such as yoga and meditation are becoming part of everyday life for many, many people. It's, it's becoming the norm. And thank goodness. It's an interesting time to be alive for sure. Um, I guess I might ask one more question, just kind of overall about kind of your philosophy of reality. And then I, I do want to kind of talk about, um, like I saw you just, I think, came up with a custom nib for your calligraphy. Um, and maybe some of the more kind of art history side of me might talk for a second. Um, but I guess in terms of, uh, I mean, it's not either or. I don't really want to put a false dichotomy in front of you. But like, so the Bodhisattva model is more like, wow, there's a whole lot of shit going on. And I'm going to sit here and try to, you know, I'm going to hold off on Nirvana until everybody's kind of leveled up if you want to put it that way. Um, so it's almost like, wow, this is a shit show and I'll hold on, I'll, you know, the, the cake won't come until everybody's ready to have the cake. Uh, whereas maybe an Arhat kind of situation is like, everything is illumined and everybody's in Nirvana already. And the suffering is an illusion. How do you look at that kind of dichotomy? It's kind of, kind, yeah, kind of like that. I mean, when we talk about a bodhisattva, they're not exactly holding off. They're still developing themselves. They're still running up through these different levels of bodhisattva. It's, it's until they become fully enlightened. Um, they are helping all other beings or other sentient beings to enlightenment. You know, but they're still very enlightened compared to most of us themselves. So it's not quite as, as kind of simple as that. Um, no, like, I don't want to speak for Raphael, but sometimes I think the Bashar kind of uh, New Age perspective is like everything is perfect already. Do you look at the idea of striving yeah. as an illusion? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, that that's very true. We are already Buddhas, you know, but we just don't quite realize it yet. You know, it's all there in the palm of our hands. You know, enlightenment is staring us in the face. It's right there. But the tr problem with us, we're always looking over there for it, you know. It's, it's with us. This this is a pure realm, if we choose to see it as a pure realm. I mean, you talked about, you mentioned the Matrix, the film, the Matrix. It, you could say in a, in a kind of very basic way that, that it, it's just like the Matrix, but it's the other way around. You know, the Matrix is was the whole world had gone to hell, and it was horrible. And then there's this digital overworld that, that made everything perfect and lovely, you know. But actually, it's the other way around. We 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 are we are in samsara now, and you know. But actually, everything is really quite fine. We, we, we're fine. Everything is is pure. 
Interesting. Yeah, it, I hope that uh, we're not just adding extra spices to the stew, so to speak, constantly. And then <laughs> I'm sure we are. Like, yeah, it's like, oh yeah. shit, we didn't need to do any of that. Like we, you know, that's just the silence of kind of being. Um, but my God, life is so attachment addictive, you know, or whatever. So it seems yes, we yes. just get caught up in the whole game so intensely. But I've always found that Raphael, you seem to not think that's a a bad quality necessarily. Like, I mean, if, if you're going to be in the dream, you might as well jam to Shiva's or uh, Krishna's flute kind of vibes. It depends on what you like. Very interesting. So, um, anything else on the philosophical front on that end, Raphael, that you wanted to address that maybe we hadn't just want to check. No, just go ahead. All right. So in terms of your art, um, like it's very, I mean, some of your posts, I, I was looking at your, uh, there was a 10 minute video that you have on your website um, from about a decade ago, but still you were kind of rummaging through your portfolio, I guess. I don't even know the right term for it. Like, you know, all the, all the originals and um, your work varies so much. I mean, I think I saw you making a uh, stamp for somebody for their name, right? So it's it's very practical kind of things, all the way to almost like concert poster looking stuff where it's very kind of emblematic uh, and and uh, iconographical in a sense in your own way, making kind of statements. I guess you could put it um, that are maybe less not 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 functional. They are functional because even the magic of the words you were kind of explaining, but uh, more kind of. Um, uh, expressive and, and explorative. So in your journey as an artist, um, what are some of the kind of things you've been finding? Uh, do you try, uh, you were doing a good job of explaining your process and it seemed like a very exacting thing. Like you want to kind of be single focused. I really loved actually in that video, your analogy of, you know, we're so divergent, like, um, you know, I guess a, it was a thread uh, head you were talking about. I'm not a, a needle aware person but it seems like there could be a double head or a single head and you can get caught up on things unnecessarily whereas the single-mindedness um kind of creates more of a solid through line for you um just you know philosophically mm -hmm. so um yeah i mean anything you want to talk about your art i can kind of geek out in terms of like you know what you know what color palettes do you prefer you know like the nibs it seems like you're kind of doing that but i'm just kind of curious um how do you describe yourself as an artist? Do you just, are you strictly a calligrapher? Do you see yourself more broadly than that? Like that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, to answer, to clarify what we were saying, um, that you need to be, to be successful to, in anything, you know, to get the job done, you need to be one pointed, like a sewing needle it has one point, but if a sewing needle has two points, you know, it, there's a point where there's the two points join, so you can't sew, you can't get get the needle through. So one pointed is best. So that that's that. Um, as me as a, uh, as an artist, yes, it's true. Um, I am a Tibetan calligraphy artist, um, but much much more than that. So, you know, my my work is iconographic. It is based in Dharma. We could label it if you want to give it a label. Uh, as Dharma art, I'm a Dharma artist. Um, so what excites me uh, and what um, I like to communicate are, are truths of Dharma. And so through the artworks, they are like, uh, like windows, you could say, in, into that. And sometimes a person may not even um, understand what Tibetan, how to read Tibetan, what the meaning is, but somehow they still 
draw from from the calligraphy or the artwork uh, the the essence of, of the meaning uh, and if a person if that communicates to a person if I communicate that to a person then I feel that you know I'm, I'm doing the right job um, yeah it's about that but my my work is as you said is it, it is pretty diverse on, on the calligraphy side then um, I'm really uh, involved with helping uh, preserve the Tibetan written language uh, you know preservation conservation of it uh, working with with other institutions um, based in New York uh, and in Bhutan um, I, I, I was helping in Bhutan before COVID happened, of course, um, to help re-establish uh, their written uh, 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 language uh, back into their culture, into their curriculum, uh, working with the monastic uh, body at the invitation of the royal family. Um, and in Tibet itself, um, so helping really to, to save the language, um, uh, it, it is a rare language. And, and yet, you know, the, the whole of the Buddhist teachings are, are translated into Tibetan so if you can read and understand it um, then it's such a golden key to that huge depth and breadth of, of, of wisdom um, that's the beauty of the Tibetan language and it just ha so happens to be a very beautiful um, written language of, of many different styles calligraphy styles with, within that it's very diverse um, but the iconography side of my artwork is is very much with full colours um, um, based on on Tibetan art, Tibetan iconography, um, presented perhaps in a little contemporary way because you know this we are in the, uh, alive here and now, um, and I'm not Tibetan, so there is you know, a, a slight different angle on that from the Western uh, point of view. But I, I wouldn't have dared do any of this if it wasn't for the fact that I, I practiced it for the 17 years as a monk and, and before, you know, so it's really sort of embody uh, to understand it and to embody it. And then, then it's, you know, more honest to, to uh, project it out as, as art or creativity. Um, I lead workshops worldwide in teaching Tibetan calligraphy, um, workshops in the process, the creative process, the meditative approach to creativity. Um, and then I, I, I won't use calligraphy at all. I, I will just, um, I use the example of painting in Enzo, you know, this Japanese big fat brush full of ink, a big circle that one paints and it's this whole ceremony or meditation you could say uh, that one learns and, and one's uh, through that process you're challenged your own uh, fears and expectations and, uh, and all of that so a very interesting um, kind of work, work to do um, I'm working on two books at the moment uh, to be published uh, I think and if anybody's uh, interested to see my work, my website is, is actually under construction. There is an old website still up, but my name, Tashi Manox, T-A-S-H-I-M-A-N-O-X. Um, you can find that on Instagram, pretty active on Instagram, um, a great uh, medium, really. 
uh, especially for artists. It's very visual, yeah. Uh, I do appreciate that it's a kind of a confluence of a few things for you. It seems like you're a traditionalist in the sense that you want to preserve heritage, exactly. pass it through, but it seems also at the same time that you're not getting so stuck on it that you don't realize what you are. Right, <laughs> like, right You're right, like, right. I'm an Englishman and I'm yeah, modern, yeah. and you know, so you're not just trying to be something you're not. You are what you is, as Frank Zappa would say. So good, good on you. Um, it seems that uh, you're. Uh, in that video that I watched, you were talking about the like you were starting to say that um, you know uh, downloads. I don't even write the word, know the right word gnosis can transpire through the medium beyond people's conscious awareness of the language itself. It seems the language is designed. I mean, for lack of a better term, to be a conduit for meaning in a higher dimensional and normal kind of way. Like uh, I don't, I can't speak as eloquently on the English language. It seems kind of a bastardization over time, blah, blah, blah. But it seems like the intention, I guess, is the best way to put it for that language as a vehicle for energy or awareness or uh, whatever. It seems very uh, much more potent than most languages. Yeah, it is. It, uh, it's because it, it evolved really to accommodate uh, the, the Buddhist teaching when he was migrating from Sanskrit in India to Tibet through these great translators. So it is a truly, in that way, a, a truly sacred language. And so that it does hold a lot of weight to it. You know, those, the words themselves are very deep in meaning. Um, so that's very true. Good observance. I'm a Gemini. I try. Uh, I'm I'm a student of life. I'm not an expert for sure, so I definitely fumble the ball quite a bit. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a you know. Um, you actually had a statement at the end of your website saying I, uh, "Aha Mo," I think, where it was just like wonder and joy. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, could you explain a little about maybe that phrase as well as the origin of your name, Tashi uh, Mannix? Because I think it's a combinatorial situation. Yeah. Right. Um, you're referring to Emma Hall. Emma Hall. It's it's um it's kind of like an explanation of of wonder. Like you go, oh, fantastic! Wowie zowie. Yeah, wowie zowie. Yeah, something like that in in Tibetan. Emma Hall. Um, and yeah, how wondrous, how wonderful! Uh, explanation mark. That's what that means. Um, it's then, funny just to quickly aside when I was I had a I mean it's weird I don't really know you know chicken egg kind of context when I was in high school I started doing chakra meditations and ironically kind of focusing on my um, stomach and my forehead and trying to do Buddha weird things but I uh, almost be like I'm going to have Bruce Lee abs and get my breath and my dentian all this stuff but I didn't know those terms at all um, and focus on my third eye and rip it open and I actually actually projected at one point um, which was kind of crazy but anyway all this stuff it seems like I uh, I drank from a soup I wasn't really accustomed to. Let's just put it that way. It was very spicy, and I didn't have anybody telling me, like, get ready for the spice. Uh, no mentor, so to speak, um, which it seems like, you know, the monastery kind of provides the guardrails so you don't just go off the edges here. Um, anyway, at one point, I kind of had this nervous breakdown in high school. And uh, when I was coming out of that situation, because I just didn't know what the fuck to make of it, um, similar to the vibe that you're saying with that statement, um, I remember driving with my family down the road, and we saw this. Uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, this bridge that was made out of stonework, but it was almost like Freemason kind of stonework, where it was just like, it was, it was not normal Western kind of like civic engineering, you know, it was more like artistic, I guess you could say. And I said, I look at it and say, wow. Uh, and that's all I could really say. I was in a kind of a weird frame of mind 
psychically at that point, kind of looser <laughs> and lucider. But it sounds like similar to that statement you're saying, where it's just like, um, you know, the the big grin, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, the big, the big wow, wow. <laughs> so, um, what's up with your name, though? I know it's very unique. Yeah, my name. I I always think my name sounds like a a, a Japanese camera brand. You know, Tashi Manox, <laughs> like Pentax or something like that. Uh, actually, Tashi is Tibetan. It's a very common name in Tibet. It means auspicious, and that, that was given to me when, when I became a monk, and it stuck. And even my most distant relatives uh, called me by Tashi. It's, it, yeah. And then my the second part, Manox, that's my, my true family name. Um, and it's it's interesting um, because it's uh, Irish Celtic. I think the right way to pronounce it is Manach. It actually means the literally the man of the monastery. Manach, Mach, the monk Manach. So it, yeah, it means Sangha, uh, the, the monastic. You could say so. Yeah, kind of Destin's family name. We've had discussions about the power of names uh, on the podcast before, and um, whether it's the universe laughing through the serendipitousness of that kind of situation, or whether you, you know, disincarnately decided to line yourself up with a trajectory that would equal that, or however it looks. I'm not sure, uh, but the irony is not lost on me that <laughs> you know you've got a name that basically projected where you would end up. It's it yeah we say it's the great, the great play you know the, the the great dance of of how everything is interrelated. I love it. Um, I guess one or two more questions about your art, and then I'll let you go because I know you've had a kind of a harrowing day. It sounded like uh, you were saying your cat got hit by a car and isn't doing so hot. So all good vibes to you. Hopefully, there's a lesson in that for everything involved. Um, but, uh, when you're kind of approaching a work of art, um, it seemed like in the Tibetan kind of form, it seemed very geometric, very, very intentional and almost stoic and like single mind, like you were saying, whereas the Japanese, um, kind of one brush, like let it go where it kind of goes and flow method seemed kind of a yin to the yang, if you will. Um, do you have any kind of preference? Do you see them as expressions of, you know, the one in different polarities, um, what kind of art do you want to be learning? I mean, if, you know, it seems like you're refining what you do, but are, are there any forms of art, uh, whether it's, you know, street graffiti or whatever that maybe appeal to you at this point, um, that you haven't dabbled with? Yeah, I've always fancied doing some, what do they call it these days? Calligraphy, calligraffiti. So giants calligraphy, um, just posh, posh tags, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I th that they go parallel together. These very sort of disciplines, both, both in, in fact, are, are based in discipline. Um, even this very free and loose and spontaneous uh, Japanese brushwork, you can't do that without the discipline. You can't. Do, you have to have many, many years of training um, before you can do that. Um, Everybody fancies themselves as a Enzo painter or, or you know a bit of a bit of Chinese brushwork or Japanese brushwork, but actually 
it, you know, you have to be really very well trained to do that. And it's the same with this, as you mentioned, this very geomantic, um, rigorous, uh, like if you paint a Buddha, for example, in the tradition, then it's all based on very, very, very specific uh, proportion of grid lines, you know, uh, that have come from an enlightened mind. So, therefore, basing the, the Buddha on these particular geomantic proportions, then it imbues that enlightenment that may come through the image and, and communicate to you. Uh, that's the the connection from the the relative to the to the ultimate, and it's the same within the Japanese brushwork as well. It's a similar sort of thing. There's no geomantic lines there in the background, but your your attitude, your meditative attitude, is you know you, you're not doing it from ego, or you shouldn't be. You're letting go. You, again, you're communicating from the the mundane to something more ultimate. So. There, there is this a different, a different way of describing the, the same thing. Just uh, as, of course, this type of art is, let's just say, not around since only yesterday, and has very explicit forms as well. How is it for you, maybe both, let's say, as a monk, also as an artist, or just as you, to kind of process or combine this idea of, on the one hand, sticking to the tradition and making it look like it's supposed to look, which is a very particular style, and even is different within different religions, from what I can see at least, and then your own artistic input, or put in a different way just now, I was wondering, were all of these monks either so incredibly skilled always, or just so incredibly well-trained that they would have a consistent quality of art output. Maybe you see where I'm getting with this. Mm, I do. Yeah, I think you, you need the, the discipline first. You need that rigorous training to allow that freedom of the brush. Um, the traditional way in, in uh, Chinese arts is it's usually only when you're sort of an ancient master of, of your, your craft that you're allowed or, or you're respected to, um, to be more spontaneous and, and do things from your, your own point of view. Um, but it, it's all um, on the foundation of the tradition. And yes, I am a traditionalist in that way, but at the same time, you know, we all, we all have our, our own, as if, you know, we all have our own fingerprints. You know, we all have our own codes and there's a, you know, an essence of, of me, an essence of Tashi that somehow comes through. Even if, even if I was doing it absolutely perfect, say, the Buddha's face to the tradition, to all the, the correct proportion lines and, and the, this very strict discipline, there'd still be something of me that comes through. Of course there is. You know, there, there is. So for me, it's a fine line. I'm trying, well, I'm not trying, I am being as traditional as possible. I'm being contemporary, but without compromising the tradition. And that's kind of quite a difficult balance to get. And I enjoy that, that uh, sort of edginess to it. I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and it's only tested by people who look at it and give me some feedback. 
you know, I, I do rely on, on people giving me feedback. Some people say, ah, oh, you're such a charlatan, you know, or, you know, your cultural appropriation and all these sort of things like that. And I'd say, well, I can't kind of help it really because I was virtually born in a Buddhist family and did grow up with Tibetan lamas and, you know, I have been through the, the proper... Uh, training and everything, you know, and, and then I can turn around and say, well, why are you wearing a baseball back and cap and a, and a pair of jeans as a Tibetan? So there's there's all sorts of stuff going on. So it is to be um, it is to be grounded in the tradition, which gives you the confidence to be a little bit more free um, and spontaneous and and lively, you know, creative and creative itself. The word create creativity itself. It, it, it's made of of different elements, isn't it? It's it's, it's playful, it, it's energetic, and it's also skillful. You need the skill, and the skill comes through the training. That's what's up. Uh, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Miles Davis said that you know, learn all the theory, music theory, and then you can jam. Uh, it sounds uh, like kind of what you're talking about. Exactly. And it's funny because uh, I had never thought about it. We have, you know, Lady Gaga's and everyone, you know, if you shit on a piece of canvas, it's art now. You know, the whole modern art phenomena of highly egotistical people being like my raw primitivist self expressing myself to the highest grader. Not that that's bad. It's just a high end on the spectrum. Um, it sounds – I had never thought about it, but it seems like a certain, you know, Asian more traditional. Right, where it's like, yo, you haven't done this for 80 years, so we don't want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> and then and then we could hear what you have to say after you've kind of mastered it, so to speak. Uh, fascinating. Uh, maybe that's a value that uh, you know the West could learn a thing or two from instead of just beating our chest saying, look at me, I am me. Um, that is true. I mean, it seems like you appreciate the fingerprintedness and the individuality, um, which is a, a, a prism through which the light shines. Uh, but you know, we're vessels and conduits of something greater than ourselves ultimately as artists, which I very much appreciated in that video you were talking about. Um, I'm a musician. I'm not so much a fine artist, but, uh, you know, artists, musicians, whatever. It's like we're here to serve uh, through expression, through being a conduit of traditions, through form, um, but ultimately to make the dream a little more interesting, it seems, without attaching too much to it. Yeah, and to, to inspire. Exactly. To inspire, to uplift humanity, to pull your brothers and sisters up with you. Yeah, and one last kind of thought. Um, uh, when I was watching that video, it was funny hearing you. You like uh, you could your emotional tenor of us. You know, obviously, when you're doing these long verses or you know long pieces, um, you could you could see how your emotions were affecting it. Though I doubt most people could see that. Um, same thing when I'm playing music and stuff. It's like that probably sounded fine to y'all, but I know where my head is at right now, where my emotions are at. And it's funny how that, um, you know, relative kind of reality can very much change how the person uh, being the conduit even experiences the output themselves. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. We're on the same level. Well, Tashi, uh, you are very interesting. I'm very glad Jesse hooked us up. Um, thank you so much for your time. I know it's a busy day for you and, um, I, you know, you're not shy. I don't want to say that, but I, I don't know how many interviews you give. So I really do appreciate you giving us your energy, time, and insight. Um, is there any? We're, we're going to put your links on the websites and stuff and Instagram so people can know how to check out your amazing stuffs. Um, yeah, is there so any much. kind of last parting sentiments you want to throw at us uh, before we call it? Yeah, everyone, you know, just just be happy. Um, 
I know, oh, well, what is happiness? You know, you have to question what is happiness. You have to know how to, to be happy as well, how to do it. Um, that's, that's for you to discover, but you know it's there. We all have the potential to be completely happy, to be completely free, you know, content, uh, honest with ourselves. Um, yeah, so just, just, guys, just don't be serious. This world is so damn serious politically, pandemic-wise, everything's so tight and serious at the moment, you know. You don't have to be serious. You can be sincere about things. You can be passionate and sincere about things. You don't need to be so serious. You know? And I talk, I'm saying that for myself uh, as well, in this, this difficult time we are in, you know. Just be kind to yourself and kind to others. Tashi Manix hit the nail on the head. We're all talking to each other, walking each other home. So, yeah, let's enjoy the ride, find the others, and ultimately, you know, make something worth looking at and pleasurable for ourselves and others. Like you're saying, uplift humanity through our actions, thoughts, and uh, deeds and all that jazz. So, thanks for coming on. Rafael, any last thoughts? Thank you very much, Tashi, for coming on. I particularly like the sigils, which I saw. Um, amazing work. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And aside from that, I can just agree. So this is what it is. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Radio Radio